You are listening to the Passion City Church DC podcast. To learn more about Passion City Church, including our gathering times in Atlanta and Washington, DC, visit us online at passioncitychurch.com. I'll start this morning just by simply sharing with you about an experience I had with my wife, Catherine, uh, when we were dating. I took her on our first date, and that went well enough that we had a second date, a third date, a fourth date, and a fifth date. And after the fifth date, I just really sensed that it was time for what we know as a DTR. I don't know if you're familiar with this lingo. Just in case you're not, a DTR stands for defining the relationship. It's that time in a relationship where you just get your feelings out on the table. So after five dates, I was like, okay, this needs to happen. And I decided that Catherine and I were going to have a DTR conversation at a U2 concert. <laughs> and some of you are like, U2? You, you're like, you who? U2, okay? It's one of the best bands in history. They'll change your life. Uh, not as much as Jesus, but they'll change it in some way. <laughs> and so uh, that was a big deal for me to invite Catherine to come and experience one of the greatest bands at one of the greatest concerts I've ever been to, but that's where I decided that this conversation was going to happen. I didn't know when I was going to do it. I was just going to let the Holy Spirit and you 2 lead the way. And so we showed up to the concert and we sat there and you uh, 2 was doing their thing and it was amazing and we were enjoying it. And then right in the middle of the concert, Catherine said that she was going to go to the bathroom and I told her I would join her, not to the same bathroom, but you know, we would do separate things. But uh, so she goes into the bathroom, and I finish before she does, because that's the way it goes sometimes. And so I'm standing there, and I am waiting in like the breezeway or the ramp that would take us back to our seats. And I'm standing there on the ramp, and as I'm standing there, U2 starts playing this song that's called Sunday Bloody Sunday. And in that moment, I just sense this is the moment. Like Sunday Bloody Sunday actually isn't a romance song. I don't know if you can tell by the title. It's not about that. But uh, I don't know if it was just the kick drum that day or what. But I was like, now is go time. And so Catherine emerged from the bathroom. And I just stopped her. And as you 2 is playing Sunday Bloody Sunday, like as that's not how it sounded. But as they're doing their thing, I stopped Catherine. And I was like, hey. I need to tell you something. She was like, okay. I was like, I like you. She was like, I like you too. I was like, I like you too, but do you like me too? <laughs> and she did like me too. And I was like, that's great. And then we walked back to our seats. <laughs> and we just stood there awkwardly because it's like, I don't know what... What, what do you do now? Like, we just had, like, a pretty significant conversation, and, <laughs> and uh, I guess things are going in the right direction. The good news is that that conversation actually gave birth to another conversation that actually formalized our relationship, but that conversation took place during the animated movie Chicken Little. So that's why I lead with the U2 concert, because that's a lot sexier than Chicken Little. Either way... Catherine and I had these very meaningful conversations, these DTR conversations, and the goal of these conversations was clarity. In these conversations, I was able to clarify for Catherine 
where we were and where we were headed. And the great news is that clarity led to confidence. We were both confident now in where our relationship was at and where we were heading together. And the reason that I even share that with you is because this morning we're going to step into the scriptures together to Romans chapter 5. And I view Romans chapter 5 as a divine DTR where God is in a sense going to get his feelings out on the table for us and clarify our status. Because here's the thing, when we truly come to grasp where we are with Jesus and where we're heading with Jesus, that clarity can breed confidence. And it fits just perfectly into the series that we're calling Roar. Because this series, Roar, is all about the Lion of Judah, Jesus Christ, roaring through your life to an unbelieving world. And the life that we truly long for is a life that is fully surrendered and fully empowered by the Spirit of God moving and working through us in a world that desperately needs Jesus. But in order for us to live the lives that we truly long for, in order for us to have those bold lives that roar with the the power and the fame of Jesus Christ, what we need is clarity that's going to give birth to confidence. Because when you're confident in where you stand with Jesus and where you're headed, the gospel of Jesus Christ is going to roar through your life in a really beautiful way. So if you have a Bible, I want you to join me this morning in Romans chapter 5, and let's just look together at this divine DTR. And as you're turning to Romans 5, let me just say this. If you're here this morning and you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, like you got tricked into coming, your friend was like, hey, let's go to brunch, and they brought you here. I'm glad God brought you here. And what you're going to hear this morning is really like, it's really the results of having a relationship with Jesus Christ. Like when I used to watch live TV, like before YouTube and Netflix, when I actually watched live TV, there were these random times where I would get sucked into an infomercial. I don't know if you remember those days where like you're just scrolling and then you're you know, flipping, and then you come across like some workout equipment or like a magical mop or something like that. And like you just, it's like, how long have I been watching this? But you watch long enough to where you're like, I want that. You know, like that's like there's something in you resonating with that. And it's because you want what you see to be true of you. And so this morning, what I'm going to unpack for you is the results of having a relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm not trying to sell you on Jesus. Jesus doesn't need to be sold. But I wouldn't be surprised if some of you here this morning find yourself resonating with what I'm telling you in such a way that you just say, I want what he's talking about. You want Jesus Christ, okay? This morning, we're really unpacking the the results of the gospel flourishing in your life. Every roar has a root, and that root for us is the gospel. But the gospel is going to play out in in several different ways, and when our lives are informed by the gospel, which is the root, it gives birth to the roar. So I'm going to unpack for you the root, and I'm going to show you different facets of this root that leads to our roaring lives. Okay? Look with me, Romans chapter 5. The Apostle Paul is talking, for the first four chapters of Romans, he has really unpacked the gospel in a very clear, beautiful way, that we were sinners 
desperately in need of a savior and Jesus has come and dealt with our sin for us. Here's what he says now. Romans chapter five, verse one. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The first thing that we have as Christians is we have right standing with God. That's the first result, okay? That's the first facet of the root of our roar is that we have right standing with God. Paul says, therefore, having been justified by faith. Faith in Jesus Christ leads to justification. Justification, it's a legal term. And so what Paul does here is he uses the imagery of a courtroom. He thrusts us into a divine courtroom where God is the righteous judge and we are the guilty defendants. We are guilty before God because of all of the ways in our lives that we have lived contrary to God's ways. And what we are deserving of for our rebellion against God is eternal separation from God. And yet Jesus Christ has stepped into the courtroom and done something so significant that the punishment that was ours became his. And because our punishment became his punishment, our death became his death. Jesus Christ has made a way now for us to stand rightly before God. We get to experience what is known as the great exchange. The great exchange is this, Jesus Christ got all of our sin and we in turn got all of his righteousness. Now, I don't know that we fully grasp this idea of Jesus getting our sin and us getting his righteousness. I think in order for us to really grasp the significance of what Jesus Christ has accomplished in our lives, we have to understand the fact that the judge that is in the divine courtroom is a holy judge, that God is a holy God. Like, I don't know what comes to your mind when I say that God is holy. Like, if you and I were to sit down for coffee and I would say, hey, uh, I've just been wondering, what's, what does it mean that God is holy? See, the holiness of God is the most uh, ambiguous attribute of God. It's the attribute of God that we struggle the most to put language around. So when we talk about the holiness of God, our tendency is to divine its our tendency is to define holiness as pure or perfect. So we want to say, well, God's pure and perfect. God is pure and perfect, but that is not what it means for God to be holy. Uh, To be holy means to be set apart. It's to be different. When we talk about the holiness of God, we're talking about the otherness of God. That God is so other than anything we've ever seen or comprehended that we don't actually have the language in our dictionary to be able to scratch the surface of touching the tip of what it actually means for God to be holy. We cannot grasp in our finite minds what God is truly like. So let me just try and unpack for you the holiness of God like this. Like I want you to think of, uh, I don't know if uh, you've ever wondered, you probably haven't, but just in case the thought just popped into your head and you thought, I wonder what that guy, that executive director of Breca, I wonder what kind of car he drives. Well, in case you're wondering, I drive a 2015 Hyundai Sonata. Okay, pretty baller car. Anyway, uh, (laughs) 
I want you to know, I'm just being honest, I got like the top of the line Hyundai Sonata. Okay, this thing has leather seats, it's got seat heaters, it has a sunroof. Like this thing, I had to drop some coin on it. Like it was more than 20,000, but it was less than 30,000, okay? It's kind of like a, it's like a mid-range sports sedan and I use the word sport loosely, but I'm gonna apply it to my car. I want you to think about this. I want you to think about us on our best days us on our best days, we are that top-of-the-line Hyundai Sonata, okay? Top-of-the-line, us on our best days, we're that Hyundai Sonata. So if we on our best days are that Hyundai Sonata, then we assume that God is a Mercedes S-Class. Like if we're top-of-the-line, best day, Hyundai Sonata, then God has to be, this holy God, he has to be a Mercedes S-Class starting at $100,000. Like he's going to do new car smell better than we could ever do new car smell. Like he's going to have like little bells and whistles that we just won't ever have. But God isn't the Mercedes S-Class. God is the tricked out, customized Airbus 380 private jet that was dreamed up by a Saudi prince. That's who God is, <laughs> valued at $500 million. Now, some of you, when I said private jet, you started getting images in your mind of what that plane must be like. And I just want to lovingly tell you that whatever image just came in your mind is laughable. Because unless you just envisioned a private concert hall in the air, a jet with a parking place for a Rolls Royce, and a prayer room that has mats that automatically turn toward Mecca no matter where you are in the sky, you're not even on the right planet when you're thinking about private jets. When we talk about God being holy, you know what the funny thing is? Is that jet never made it to production. So all you can do is read about it. We don't even have pictures to help put it into our framework to really understand. And God's the same way because we read this book and we read that God is holy, 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 but it doesn't compute for us because we can't truly see God for who he truly is. What I'm trying to articulate is we don't have the language or the bandwidth to even touch the tip of scratching the surface of getting our minds around what it actually means that our God is a holy God. And the fact that God is holy actually informs every other attribute of God. So God is holy in his love. His love is other than anything we've ever fathomed. His love and his justice and his wrath and his omnipresence and his grace and his mercy have gears that our minds can't even shift into. They have doors that we don't have keys to. And so when I say that the judge in the divine courtroom is a holy judge, I need you to begin to grasp just how offensive even your smallest missteps are before him. Because until you, you know what our tendency is? Our tendency is to have minimal views of God and trivial views of our sin. And until we begin to grasp just how offensive even our smallest missteps towards God can be, we won't understand the the weightiness of the fact that Jesus did something so significant that he's made a way for us imperfect people to be called sons and daughters of that holy God. 
That is what Jesus Christ has done for us. So when Paul says, therefore, having been justified by faith, I need you to begin to understand that is how significant this is, that Jesus has done something that has made me right before a holy God. And I'm just going to lovingly tell you we live as if we don't get it. Like I think that we get the fact that Jesus died on the cross and he took our sins upon himself and because of what he's done, we'll experience eternal life in heaven. I think we get that about the great exchange that Jesus took our sin. What I don't think that we get is that not only did he take our sin, but he gave us his righteousness. And the reason I don't think that we get it is because of this. Let me just ask you, how do you think God feels about you right now? Like when he sees you Right now, what do you think is in his heart towards you? I wonder how many people in here, if we were brutally honest, if we were just really real, like if we had real talk right now, you'd say, he feels disappointment. Like he's just disappointed. Like if I was just a little bit further along than I am now, if I was just a little bit godlier than I am now, you know what, if my past was just a little less that, Like God loves me, but he just doesn't like me as much as he will when I get to this place. Do you understand that that is an assault on the cross of Jesus Christ? Because Jesus Christ left heaven and came to earth not to just take your sin, but to give you his righteousness so that when a holy God looks at you, he doesn't see you, he sees the blood of Jesus Christ. So when God now sees you, he sees Jesus. So all of the love that God the Father has for God the Son now comes to you. All of the delight, all of the approval, all of the acceptance, all of the pleasure that God the Father is expressing towards his son becomes yours because you are in Christ. Just imagine the roar of your life when you really lean into the fact that you have the righteousness of Christ. You don't just have it, you are it. And that entitles you to the love, acceptance, approval, and favor of a holy God. We're moving at lightning speed through Romans 5, as you can see, but Paul says this. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So first, at the root of our roar is right standing with God. The second thing that's at the root of our roar is peace with God. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. That word peace in the Greek, it's a war term. So when it says that we have peace with God, it means that because of your faith in Jesus Christ, he has exempted you from the rage and havoc that comes along with war. You have been completely exempted from it. Here's what we have to understand. This book articulates that without Jesus, we are enemies of God. That we are enemies of God. Ephesians chapter two calls us children of wrath. So if we don't know Jesus Christ, then what this text would say is we're actually at war with God. See, there is no neutral position with God. You're either for God or against God. To be indifferent to God is to be against God. 
Like I remember talking to a guy on the campus of Texas A&M University and he just said, look, I will consider spiritual things later in life. I'll get serious, sir. I will get more serious about religion later in life, but right now I just want to enjoy myself. And I get that. It's a typical college student. You know what the problem is with that mentality? And that might be where you're at right now. The problem with that mentality is there is an assumption that you are neutral with God, that when God sees you, he doesn't feel good or bad about you. You're just kind of, you're at zero. But the scriptures would say, you're either for him or against him. Either Jesus is going to be your king or sin is going to be your king. There is no option for you to be king. And so if sin is your king and God is at war with sin, Romans chapter 1 says that the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man. Some of you might need to realize that you're at war with God and you don't even realize it. But if you know Jesus Christ, the war has been permanently ended. All of the wrath that was stored up for our sin was diverted onto Jesus Christ. And the result has been peace. Like that is your permanent position. So when God sees you, what he feels towards you is peace. I don't know if you can feel that peace. Honestly, I don't care if you feel that peace. That peace isn't a feeling for us. It's just a fact. It's just reality. We can live as if it's not a reality, but how we feel doesn't change reality. No matter how we feel, truth never bends to our feelings. Our position with God is a position of peace. And that's great news because here's what that means. It means that God will will discipline us out of love, but he'll never punish us out of anger. Doesn't that just change the way you see God? That he will discipline you in love, he'll never punish you in anger. Because you're permanently at peace with him. Just think about the roar that can come from our lives. This is what we can offer a broken world. Peace with God. And if you're here this morning and you don't know him, let me just ask you in a loving way, do you realize that you might be at war with God and you don't even realize it? But the offer on the table this morning is peace. Paul says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2, through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So at the root of our roar is is first right standing with God. Number two, there's peace with God. And number three, there's access. And Paul is very clear what we have access to. Jesus Christ, through the cross, has in a sense kicked off open a door for us to grace in which we stand. So in the Greek, that idea of standing, it's confidence. It's, it's firmly planted feet. We, we're immovable from a position of receiving God's grace. That's what the cross has done. It's kicked open the door. It's given us access to a life of God's unrestrained, undeserved, unearned favor. That's what grace is. 
Douglas Moo, though, the commentator, just helped me see this in a new light. I've studied this passage for years, and just recently, I love the way that he phrased it when it says that Jesus Christ has given us access into this grace in which we stand. What he says is Jesus Christ has transferred us to a new realm in which grace reigns. So I need you to understand that's the realm in which we live, in the realm in which we operate. We operate in a realm in which God's unrestrained, unearned, undeserved favor reigns in our lives. And we desperately need to grasp this because if we don't grasp this, the world will try and inform our lives. Here's what the message is from the world. You're not a human being, you're a human doing. And so you are defined by what you do. Rattling around deep inside of each one of us is this haunting question, am I enough? Like, do you ever feel that? Like, am I funny enough? Am I smart enough? Am I skinny enough? Am I in shape enough? Am I high capacity enough? Am I outgoing enough? Am I engaging enough? Am I compelling enough? Like, do you ever you ever feel that? Like, am I enough? And what the world will tell you is, no, you're probably not enough. And so, so many people in this world are just going to die climbing a ladder. Like, we're climbing this ladder, and we think, if I can just get to the top of this ladder, I'll be enough. But the problem is that the, when we reach the top of one ladder, it's actually just the bottom of another ladder. So, we start climbing that ladder, and at the top of that ladder is just the bottom of another ladder, and so many people go through life and die on a ladder. Jesus Christ has come to take us off the ladder, and he's come to inform our operating system, that we don't operate for approval, we operate from approval, because Jesus Christ has transferred us to a new realm in which grace let me explain it this way. I have three boys. Noah's 10, Andrew's 8, and Jake is 2. And I have a uh, routine with my boys at night when I'm putting them into bed. I'll, I'll put them down and I'll say, hey, Noah, look at me, dude. Hey, man, I love you and I'm so proud you're my son. I'll go to Andrew. Hey, Andrew. Hey, man, I love you, dude. I'm so proud you're my son. When I drive him to school in the morning, when I'm turning onto the street, I say, hey, Noah. Hey, dude, I love you. I'm so proud you're my son. Hey, Andrew. I love you, man. I'm so proud you're my son. Do you know what their response is? Okay. <laughs> That's it. Hey, Andrew, man, I love you. I'm so proud you're my son. Huh? <laughs> and I'm like, they're 10 and 8. Like at what point did a 10-year-old and an 8-year-old go grow callous to the fact that they're earthly father is full of love and pride in them as my children. And I just think of us and I'm like, when did we grow calloused to the fact that our perfect heavenly father looks at us and calls us his beloved children? When did we grow callous to the fact that our God in heaven is looking at us saying, I love you, I delight in you, I'm well pleased with you. But instead, what do we do? We run out to the world begging the world for what we already have freely in Jesus Christ. 
We run out to the world begging for approval and God's like, you already have it. Jesus left heaven and came to earth to declare it. And so you want to feel the roar of Christ coming through your life? Then begin to believe that the banner over your life is enough. That the God of the universe today is saying, you are enough for me. Not because of what you do for me, because, but because of what Jesus Christ has done for you. That Jesus Christ, when you weren't enough, made you enough. We have to learn how to deal, operate with a different operating system. We have to begin to wake up each morning just saying, enough with being enough. Enough with being enough today. I will not beg the world for what God has freely given me in Jesus Christ. Here's the thing. The God of the universe this morning is speaking to you saying, you are enough for me. The question is, will that be enough for you? The root of our roar is right standing with God. There's peace with God. There's access to God in this grace in which we stand. But it's not just that. It's not just right standing and peace and access. There's also hope. I mean, look at what Paul goes on and says. It says, he goes on to say, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That word hope needs to be defined because when we use the word hope, we use it interchangeably with wishful thinking. It's like, I hope the professor rounds up. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about. You've been there. Like, I hope I get the promotion. I hope I'm married by 40. You know, like that's, it's wishful thinking. That's it. But this word in the Greek, it is confident expectation. That's what it implies, that we have confident expectation in the glory of God. What's the glory of God? It is everything praiseworthy about God. It is all of his attributes bundled together, put on display for us to see. That is the glory of God. Because of what Jesus Christ has done, we have confident expectation that a day is coming where we will behold the glory of God without hindrance. And we will be permanently, eternally satisfied. Psalm 1611 says, um, in your presence, there's fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Who sits at the right hand of God? Jesus Christ. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand, which is where Jesus sits, there are pleasures forevermore. What that means is because of what Jesus Christ has done for us, we can operate with a confident expectation that we will spend all of eternity in the all-consuming always satisfying, never-ending pleasures of Jesus Christ. So when you talk about a DTR, DTRs are important for knowing where you stand and where you're headed. This is where we're headed. And we know that. And we want this reality to roar through our lives so that we can invite as many people in to come and experience this with us. 
So we have right standing, we have peace, we have access, we have hope. And then we have joy in our sufferings. Watch this, not only that, verse three, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character. Character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So all eyes on me. I want to make sure that you understand the progression through this passage because Paul unpacks it. He says that sufferings produces endurance. Now, the Greek is interesting on this, the original language of the New Testament, because that word sufferings in the Greek literally means under pressure. Some of you are like, Bible's never made more sense to me than right now because I feel the pressure. Like you feel, you are under pressure now. Some of you guys are suffering right now. You are lonely now. You are depressed now. You are suicidal now. Some of you guys are in mourning of losing a loved one now. You are under pressure. It says those sufferings produce endurance. In the Greek, that word endurance, you know what it means? It means literally to remain under. So just think about this. Like it, it, it's, the, it's the growing ability to remain under. So when you're under pressure, our tendency is to want to get out from under the pressure. But Paul is saying when we're under pressure, we remain under. And when we remain under the pressure, that endurance produces character. So the, the image here of is an olive in a press. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. See, when you're under pressure and you remain under, it squeezes out all the impurities in your life. And there's this purified character that emerges. And that character leads to hope. What's that hope? It's that confidence that God is working in you. It's that confidence that you know God and God knows you and he's doing a work in you and that God is going to take you one day to where he is. It's that hope that this is the closest we will ever get to hell. So here's, here's what I want you to understand, especially if you're someone who is suffering this morning. Here, Here's what God is telling us in this divine DTR. What he's telling us is, I love you so much that I won't let one ounce of pain be wasted. God's saying, I will take pain that seems pointless and I will make it productive in your life. I will never waste your pain, but I will use it for my glory. So here's the progression when you're under pressure and you remain under, you know what happens is you begin to see God. You begin to see God in ways you wouldn't get to see him if you weren't suffering. My wife and I, we've had an interesting start to 2020. Our kid got diagnosed with something that we did not see coming and it's kind of thrown us a curveball this in 2020. And I found myself worshiping and having to inform my soul. I will worship the Lord in the midst of this right now. And rising up in me was this endurance. And this endurance is, is purifying my life. It's allowing me to see God in ways I wouldn't get to see him if this trial hadn't hit our life. Here's the thing. When you begin to see God, you become more like God. And when you become more like God, you begin to show God. See, seeing leads to showing. 
And an unbelieving world will look in on your life and say, I need what you have. Let me just ask you, what if your greatest ministry might come through your greatest pain? Would you be okay with that? Would you be okay with God saving your sphere of influence through your pain? Because God's informing us this morning just saying, I love you enough to lead you through the pain, but to not waste your pain and use your pain for my glory and for your joy and for others. That's how good God is. So we have right standing, we have peace, we have access, we have hope, we have joy in our suffering. And last, the last facet of our root that leads to a great roar, a life that is fully surrendered to and empowered by the Spirit of God. The last facet is because of the gospel, we have value. Okay, look with me. Let me just read you verses 6 through 10. And I want you to see what this text says about us before we knew Jesus. Here it is. For while we were still weak, That's the first word. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So not only are we weak, we were ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, so we're weak, ungodly sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, so we were weak, ungodly, sinful enemies of God, for if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. You see all this wording that describes who we are prior to knowing Jesus Christ? These are not words of value. Like we do not bring anything to God of value. But when Jesus Christ left heaven and came to earth, when he willingly submitted to the Father's will and hung on that cross and he declared it is finished. So many things were finished in that moment. But one of the massive things that was finished was the work that needed to take place for the God of the universe to place value on our lives. That's what Jesus Christ was doing. That's why 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says that we were bought at a price. Because we who had no value were given value by Jesus Christ and a price tag was put on our lives. And this is massive because many of us go our whole lives asking the question, how much am I worth? Like, what is my value? But what the gospel tells us is that our value isn't something that we earn from the world. It's something that we receive freely from God, because if you want to know what you're valued at, all you have to do is look at the cross, because on the cross, God was declaring, this is what you're worth to me. If you want to know what your value is, here it is. You are valued at the body and blood of Jesus Christ. That's your value. That's the price tag on your life. If you're asking, what am I worth in life? Here it is. You're worth the body and blood of Jesus. 
And God the Father gave his son to have you. Do you know why I'm telling you this? I tell you in large part because in the 1950s, Leon Festinger popularized what's known as the social comparison theory. Like he informs why we compare ourselves to other people. I know you guys don't struggle with comparison. You've never compared yourself to anyone in the last three minutes. Uh, (laughs) But he tells us why we compare. He says we compare to determine our own social and personal worth. He's saying we determine our own social and personal worth based on how we stack up against others. Do you know why you compare? You compare yourself to others because you're trying to figure out how valuable you are. You're trying to figure out your worth. And so our lives are driven by er and as. It's like we need to know, like, am I smart er, funny er, pretty er, skinny er, wealthy er, godly er, successful er than the people around me? Because if I'm not, what does that say about me? What does that say about my value and my worth? And if, if some of you are like, I don't have the, uh, I'm not driven by er. Well, then you're driven by as. Like, am I as pretty as that person? Am I as funny as that person? Am I as successful as that person? Am I as smart as that person? Am I as high capacity as that person? We long to know, can we at least just measure up to the standard set by someone else? And if you live by that, you're going to die by that. But Jesus Christ has died so that you might live, and he came that you might know your value. He came to answer the question, you are worth the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Not because of anything you've done, solely because God chose to let that be the case. Solely because God chose to place value on us who had no value. I mean, would you just let this sink in? The king of heaven doesn't need you, but he wants you. Can you imagine the roar proceeding from your life when you operate in the joy and the power and the freedom that comes when you know that the king of heaven doesn't need you, but he wants you? I'll end with this. Do you want to know why? I had that DTR with Catherine at the U2 concert and then Chicken Little. Do you know why we had that DTR, those DTRs? Because I hate relational limbo. Like I hate relational limbo. And some of you get that because you're in relational limbo right now. And you're like, I don't know where we stand. Like, I don't know what this is. Like, we're still just trying to figure it out. Like we're hanging out, but are we, go- like, where, where, are we going somewhere? It's just relational limbo. You know what happens when there's a lack of clarity? There's a lack of confidence. You know what the opposite of confidence is? Uncertainty. Uncertainty leads to insecurity. It's hard for a relationship to flourish. When there is no clarity, that leads to confidence. And the same is true with Jesus. If there's a lack of clarity, there's going to be a lack of confidence. Where there's a lack of confidence, there's a lack of a roar producing, being produced from your life. 
But here's the thing. Jesus Christ this morning is speaking to us through Romans chapter 5. He's written a letter through his apostles saying, this is where we stand. This is where we, we are heading. This is our status. Would you know it? Would you believe it? Would you internalize it? And would you allow the gospel of Jesus Christ to move through your life with a powerful roar, the line of Judah moving through our lives, rescuing an unbelieving world because of the results produced from the root of our roar. I hope you believe it. I hope you trust it. But more than anything, I hope we live it. If you were encouraged by today's talk, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you stream your podcasts. To experience other talks, videos, and live gatherings, visit us online at passioncitychurch.com or download the Passion Movement app. And again, thank you for listening to the Passion City Church DC podcast.